Welcome to Trending in Education. This is Mike Palmer. I'm joined today by Aaron Rasmussen, who's the founder and CEO of Outlier.org. He was also in at the inception of Masterclass. He's been creating really amazing learning content for quite some time now. We'll get into that in a bit. Before we do any of that, Aaron, welcome to Trending in Education. Thanks for having me, Mike. It's great to have you. You're someone who I've taken some inspiration from over the years. Masterclass was a brand that really leveled up my thinking about what learning media might be. So hopefully we'll get to that a little bit and then get into what you're doing at Outlier as well. But before we do that, we always like to begin with your story. Can you share with us what got you to this point in your professional life? Oh, what got me to this point is probably like there's, you know, that the horrible internal drive from like being too skinny and things like that growing up. I, like that's, that is a story yeah. for my therapist, but I can definitely tell you where I'm from. I grew up basically 12 miles outside a small town of 620 people, Western Oregon. And my dad was middle school science teacher. There's five kids in my family. So, you know, not a lot of money going around on a, uh, a teacher's salary, pay them more. So I ended up going to Boston University and having to transfer in community college credits mm. to try to make ends meet. I was on a Pell Grant, scholarships, this sort of thing, mm -hmm. and uh, got degrees in computer science and advertising. But obviously, education's always been really important to me. One, being a bit of an autodidact myself. Secondly, just growing up in a family where your dad's testing out a cloud chamber on the kitchen table so you know he can show his class the next day. And just to jump um, in, an autodidact means you taught yourself. I, yes, I had to teach myself, but the growing up in the woods in the 90s and early 2000s, there wasn't good access to information or education. So, you know, you'd read all the books in a section you're interested in in the library and then ask your parents to drive you to a further library and they just drop you off and, you know, you just sit on the floor of the stacks reading books while they go grocery shopping because, you mm. know, the grocery store is like an hour and a half away. Yeah. So, yeah. So I really did have to learn to teach myself a lot. And that's come in very handy in my life. In fact, I think it is one of the greatest things about education is frequently you're being taught the information, but you're also being taught how to learn yourself, mm. what sort of the trailheads of different topics are, what the structure of information looks like, mm. what it feels like to master a topic. Mm. So I go to Boston University, get degrees in computer science and advertising, um, started a robotics company, sold that when I was 24, started a beverages company, sold that when I was 28. Then made a video game with my good friend, Michael Astolfi. Just quick follow-up to, did you ever get the robots to make the beverages? Because that's a startup idea I might be able to get behind. You know what's funny? There was a robot at the time that was called, I think, Mixbot. And it was a robot bartender we used to see at trade shows. Uh -huh. um, our robots made granite countertops. The, the Roomba of cocktails. Yes. I'm sorry. Please continue. There you go. There you go. Oh, yeah. So... My buddy, Michael Stolfi and I ended up making a video game about being blind. It had no mm. visuals. It was called Blindside. I was blinded in an accident uh, when I was 15. I ended up getting my vision back. It was a bad chemistry accident, mm. but it prevented me from going into chemistry. It also gives you a pretty interesting perspective when you really don't think you're going to get your sight back. Yeah. Wow. So we made this video game that was just for fun. Like it's a good time working with one of your friends. 
it was kind of a way for me, I think, to work through some of those experiences. Yeah. We ended up winning some awards with it and, you know, it ends up being on Kickstarter and we're on Wired and then the New Yorker and now they're making yeah. it into a feature film actually by Remember oh. Pictures. Don't worry, this is relevant in the future to education. So then I started Masterclass with my co-founder, David. So I was the creative side as well as weirdly the CTO, you know, then, then he was the business side. Yeah. And that was an incredible ride because it was really trying to figure out how to make online education something prestigious and beautiful was difficult. There were no prototypes for that. Right. And there's definitely a part where I was just kind of freaking out because, you know, my job was to make all this stuff. You know, it took a while to get to the masterclass style, that sort of conversational yeah. style where you're really looking for these gems of information. Mm -hmm. So anyways, set the style, I actually ended up directing a bunch of the early ones myself. This very hilarious situation where Werner Herzog said that I should ask him the question. So I was like, okay, well, here, here we go. And then basically got on this great path, trained up a creative team, was able to hand the reins over and take a year off. For folks who aren't familiar with Masterclass, it is the golden age of television meets e-learning. It's not the Khan Academy. It's nothing against what Sal Khan's doing, but there is production value. You're also booking. I'm going to refrain from doing my Werner Herzog impression, although we all have that inside of us. You're booking some of the real premium talent, thought leaders, folks who, you know, have name recognition. You know, if folks aren't familiar with Masterclass, you probably should be by now. Yeah, I should give a one-liner on it. It's funny because Masterclass sometimes doesn't translate. That name recognition doesn't translate to some of our outlier students, for example, because our outlier students, we reach across a pretty wide range, but specifically low-income students, which right. we're really excited about. You know, I'm skipping ahead here, but the goal is providing access to education. So Masterclass, the idea was to democratize access to genius. Mm. How do we capture the knowledge of the world's best mm. and give it to the broadest audience possible? So that sounds something like learning tennis from Serena Williams or acting from Natalie Portman or yeah. singing from Christina Aguilera or... There, there was a Steph Curry class, I think, right? Steph Curry, Aaron Sorkin. I mean, it's just on and on and on. Mm -hmm. And I'm really proud of the fact that we were able to set something up like that. My goal with it, when people would ask what your four-year plan is, I'd say, well, I'll tell you the hundred-year plan then. Let's roll back 96 years. The hundred-year <laughs> plan was really to just have a group of people out there trying to capture the knowledge of the world best. Mm -hmm. So we missed out on that for a lot of humanity. It's like occasionally you have somebody do it themselves. Stephen yeah. King's <laughs> on writing. It's fantastic. Ray Bradbury. But then we've lost so many along the way. In fact, even with Masterclass, I mean, I feel a personal responsibility when we miss out on one. I really, really wanted to do both Prince and David Bowie and to miss that one. So anyways, so I was able to take a year off and I feel very lucky for the success of Masterclass. So I really tried to think about what do I want to do? You know, yeah. I, I grew up with humble means, so I've not gotten to choose a lot of my life. Right. Mm -hmm. We take opportunities that come like giant robots that cut granite countertops. But I got into a spot where I could really think about what I want to do next. So I decided to learn more about the world. So I went to 28 countries and just set a goal of trying to understand the world better because I'd never been to India or China or East Africa or Eastern mm -hmm. Europe. And these are really important places, um, sort of the global fabric. Now, of course, this is also an excuse to go just have an adventure and scuba dive and fly a glider and eat tons of food and get really sick all the time. And which, by the way, 100% just do it. Just eat all the street food. Just take the pills. Try not to get anything permanent, but so worth it. So worth it. And my top five meals mm. is a couple like Michelin star restaurants and definitely a couple meals that cost less than a dollar. Mm -hmm. so, so I come back and realize after 
kind of just talking to people around the world, that my story of education fundamentally changing my life is not that unusual. I, I heard this story over and over. I had a tour guide that took us to his fishing village where he'd gotten a bicycle from an American NGO. It was one of 50 bicycles that came to the town. So we rode into Siemri and went to the Buddhist temple and said, I want to learn English. So he learns English. And with English, he's able to become a tour guide, support mm. a family of three. So proud of it. Not totally dissimilar, right? Mm. Being able to go to a place like Boston University and learn what you need to. So I come back wondering, why don't we have a great four-credit online solution? There are some options out there, but when the average person thinks, okay, I should get some college courses online, there's an empty spot there. Right. And there's good reason there's an empty spot, right? So with Masterclass, the goal was, let's become the place you go to learn from the best. And like right now, I'm pretty sure if people want to learn from the best, they're going to think Masterclass. Now, there's a few other options out there, right? A few knockoffs and this sort of thing, and some really extraordinary talent is on those platforms, but you still think Masterclass. And if you are the best at something and you want to teach, you also think Masterclass. Mm -hmm. Much smaller audience, but an incredibly important one. So with Outlier, the question was, why don't we have that for college credit? So I started just researching. You know, there's no, no secret to learning. Just read, 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 and then start talking to people. And I found that a lot of really smart people who are well-funded have tried to do this over and mm. over again. And it's really, really hard for a number of reasons. The first is prestige. Online education has been really looked down upon for many years. Fortunately, that's changed. But a lot of really great efforts were done around 2005, 2006. So the other thing is partner with the top university, get real college credit. So we partner with the University of Pittsburgh. The second is the content. You've, you know, really sculpt it, find a language that works on a laptop, on a phone, right? You're not just recording a stage play and then pretending it's a movie, which worked great in the beginning of online education. Like I was in MIT open courseware yeah. like in high school. I got to see the inside of an MIT classroom. That, that's insane coming yeah. from like small town in Oregon. So that was fantastic, but times change. You have to innovate as the student and the, the learners expect more. So you got to make a, a new take on this. We went out to educational psychologists, found out there was just tons of really good innovation already. People just mm. hadn't adopted it. So mm. we had to make our own LMS to actually be able to implement that. There's the social aspect, which is really missing in a lot of online courses. They're really lonely. And then the final part's the price. You know, 2U did a pretty good uh, job of semester online. It was too expensive. We recently raised our price from $400 to $600 per course on okay. our uh, a la carte courses. Yeah. These are University of Pittsburgh credits. These transfer to Harvard, to NYU. It's pretty wild. And of course, our big announcement is our degrees plus associate degree through GGU. And we're powering this degree. It's actually three degrees, uh, Applied Computing Business Administration Liberal Studies. Bit of a long answer there. But. I got it a couple of times. It's all good. <laughs> and the audience that you're trying to reach in some ways is you. When you were growing up, you mentioned, you know, you went to community college, you transferred, you, you had to find those pathways. It was difficult then. It's still difficult now. And it is a place where one would think online learning would be an accelerant to providing that access. Can you describe who your intended audience is? Yeah, I think that you're hitting it on the head. This is in many ways for me. This is for, and of course it's called outlier, but when you start to look at what the actual student population today looks like, it's 85% commuters. Yeah. When we think college student, you're thinking of somebody with a backpack living in a dorm, that's 15% of students. So 
really maybe less the outlier and the majority that is going to need education that's low cost, that's flexible, that's super high quality. Mm-hmm. Why not give all three of those? Yeah. And our student population, we're very proud of because you could imagine making this and having it really only appeal to the top few percent of students. But 34% of our students are first generation, mm. you know, which is a, a, an amazing stat. We've got mm-hmm. 22% that are high school students. They found us on their own. We got 14% that are international. So you can think of it as sort of a dumbbell distribution where we've got, you know, high school to early college. So these are the students that are looking for flexibility to not build up a ton of student debt. Mm -hmm. to get a really high quality education and probably transfer into a four-year college. Then we've got the adult learners. They might have some credits. They want to level up their career. They're maybe going back to college for the first time. This is part of why our partnership with Amazon is such a big deal for us and for the students. You know, it provides this pathway because the ultimate goal with this, so we have a two-pronged mission, increase access to high quality higher education and reduce student debt. And the ultimate goal is not that everyone should take outlier, but that outlier should be an option for everyone. And I think that's really what we're trying to solve. You know, they say that, you know, potential is evenly distributed, but opportunity is not. Mm. We're very much trying to make opportunity distributed because from a, a personal standpoint, that's what you're missing. You just want your shot. You know, we're not saying everybody has to succeed in it. We're not saying that it's the right path for everyone. We're Mm -hmm. just saying everybody should get their shot at being what they can possibly be. Right. Yeah. The the language I like is opportunity gaps when people talk about the gap. You know, it's not that they wouldn't have succeeded. It's just they didn't get the opportunity. And you can see how what you're designing here does open that up. It's also a time where learners are confronted with new challenges. There's a lot of talk about well-being and belonging feeling that sense of connection and community because getting through college is hard. Like that sticking with the thing and demonstrating the grit and the perseverance is really part of what that degree ultimately means. Can you describe a little bit about how you build that community and how you are welcoming these students into Outlier? Yeah, so we are very proud of our completion with credit rates. It's over 50% which is pretty wild because I think we all remember the MOOCs, which were very well-intentioned, Yes, would have a 2 to 4% completion rate at the best, usually a, a lot less. So part of it is the platform and our interactive learning and then the, the quality of content and the fact that we spend a year and probably get a lot of gray hair making these things. But then the other part is the community. It's cohort-based. And we tried a bunch of different methods for getting students together and interacting because that's the main thing, right? I had, I had like four friends in computer science in college, but yeah. we just took all of our classes together. It was so fun. It made the whole experience better. Computer science is a hard degree. Like yeah. it is many hours in a lab just trying to teach a box of lights to do tricks, you know? So we started with, we, we tried like Zoom study groups, total failure. It was just, yeah. Nobody wanted to do that. There'd be like just one student in it. And it's like, that was intense. Sorry, sorry. And then we switched to Slack which mm. actually worked pretty well. You've got right. to seed it right. Because everything, it, that, that cultural operating system is the really important part. Mm. If you have people who are being negative, it will be negative. Mm. That's why, and this is coming back to that video game that I made with my friend, Michael Stolfi. He is our VP of product at Apple. Ah, he was oh, our, cool. our first employee. That's nice. Because one, we knew we really liked working together. We, we ended up making several more video games. You know, yeah. 
and this sort of thing. But two, when you really think about the way people learn now, video games are probably the largest wealth of information on that. Mm -hmm. Because you have kids from seven years old uh, up to teens learning super complicated systems like Fortnite yep. with no instructor. It's a lot of social learning. It's a lot of peer-based learning. So we think a lot about how do different video games, how do those communities arise? Interesting. So the Payday 2 community, which he and I used to play years ago, we still play with some of our other teammates on Thursday nights. We play Valorant together. And it's like, it's a great social thing, right? Because you're talking with each other. But what's fascinating is the culture of different video games in the community can be pretty toxic. So you've got to seed it so it isn't. And what we found on Slack is you can, if you get it right, it turns out that students teach each other mm. a lot more than we needed to. Now mm. we have human student advisors. We also have subject matter experts in the degree that GGU faculty supports the students as well, which is really exciting. But it turns out a lot of that support is encouragement. It's time management. Yeah. Questions about quizzes. It's not actually the learning. Because the learning, if you get it right, the peers like the social approval of right. having taught somebody something. So we've since switched to Yellowdig, which is, it sounds like you're familiar with, yep. Sean McRoy's company. You know, when we went out there and we looked at all the different kind of ways we could do this, including building our own, we really liked it the best. And part of the reason is because you can measure engagement more accurately. So it gives us a better understanding of the community. And then also like, we do have participate, you know, part of your grade is participation. That's a great little nudge, right? I like to say that the future of education is the future of motivation because education, right? The, the actual knowledge, calculus. Okay, let's take calculus. My favorite book, my favorite calculus textbook is from 1914. Hmm. I don't really know that it's gotten better since then. Right. It's called Calculus Made Easy. It's snarky. It's fun. We actually used some of their examples in the calculus course. Tim Chartier has talking to him about just kind of the, the DDX of the, uh, and then a little bit, which is what they call it. They're just like, yeah, and you just add a little bit. It's just like a fun, colloquial, easy way to understand calculus. Mm. And Tim was like, I really like this. Let's put it in the class. If you're motivated enough, this book's out of copyright. It's free. Yeah. You just learn calculus on your own. Mm. Kind of how I had to learn growing up. Whereas like, I was excited to get my hands on a book. That was the goal is to get the book right. so I could read it. Now, the actual learning part, I, then I could just struggle with it for weeks on it. We can't expect that of students at this point, you know? And I think that's totally reasonable, right? We've improved the technology and the way we interact with the world physically. Why yeah. not improve the way we interact with the world with our minds? Yeah. And part of this is, okay, so if you get really good at motivating a student, you could motivate them through a textbook. You don't even need online education, right? If you had Peloton for textbooks, you could get students through textbooks. So this is a combination of all the motivational tricks you could possibly use yeah. to get a student through a course, give them the confidence, give them the knowledge and the understanding of how they learned that particular mm. topic. Yeah, that's great. And I could see how building the trust and the psychological safety is kind of foundational in terms of the emotional design. But then you still have to deliver the content and you have to continue to earn the learner's attention. And that's where you've probably done the most groundbreaking innovation over the course of your career. And that's the part that maybe we could dig into next. You know, we're trying to understand how we're going to teach the TikTok generation, how we're going to teach the Fortnite generation, where 
they're learning a lot. They're spending millions, billions of attentional hours in these other formats. And then frequently they go into a learning context and it's completely different. Something that maybe their parents might have felt comfortable with 20 years ago. A lot of what you're building, I think, is with that future learner in mind, while still being relevant to the distribution you were describing. Can you talk about some of the product design concepts and principles that have been successful for you? Yeah. So we are in a tricky moment in education because people ask, why don't you just blow up the whole old system and make something new? And why don't you make it like an MMO video game that blah, blah, blah. Okay. I get that. There's people working on that. At the end of the day, people need to be able to prove that they learned. So they need college credits. And that's the way we do it right now. It's going to be the way we do it going forward for a while. And every year that we don't have a better, less expensive option, students rack up $100 billion in debt. So this isn't like a theoretical, oh, in the future problem. This is every month, it's like $8 billion. So like days matter, yeah. Yeah. you know, when it comes to people's opportunities. So for us, we have to straddle this very bizarre world where we think of seed hours, we think of video hours, you know, and there's all of the assessments while trying to bring in some of this high engagement, how do you tear them away from their phones approach? So one of them, for example, is competency-based. Our quizzes, you can take five different versions of the quiz, we'll take your highest score. Sounds simple. When I talk to these educational psychologists, they said this is one of the best things that they've found for teaching. And the reason is one, you're learning by assessment. And two, it lowers the anxiety around the quizzing. And anxiety and depression, obviously huge problems right now. Right. And we don't, we're not testing the test-taking ability of the student. That is something that they should learn, mm -hmm. but we're testing their knowledge. So our midterms and our final are you take them once, they're proctored, but the quizzes are competency-based. Mm. And we think about this kind of balance between the student's motivation and their I know sometimes I think it was like misery level. So like with calculus, right? Calculus, you want to ramp them into it. The ideal version of calculus, which we'll probably switch up to at some point, I learned this from a New Jersey high school teacher, is to start with polynomial derivatives hmm. because anyone can do those. So by the time you, you get out the other side, you're like, I am so good at calculus. Hmm. Now it's all the same information, even if you swap up the ordering, but that gives them the motivation that they can then get through a midterm that's going to be difficult. Right. So there's a couple different things. One is stuff like literally interleaved question sets, right? Where you get that variety, you get that retention synthesis, you've got competency-based quizzes, you've got the community. You got some space repetition in there, if I'm hearing you right. If you're, interle if you're, if you're interleaving, there's some space repetition. You got it. We've got guided notes, which are really helpful. Our interactive, so our textbook is actually, it's all active learning based. Yep. You're really clicking through it. There's questions every once in a while. You're really kind of playing the game where it's the game you used to play on TV back in the day where you've got 22 minutes of content and a half hour TV block. So you've got to say, come back after the commercial break and you got to dance, dance, dance. Yeah, that's I, I hate to say it, but the, the competition for instructors now isn't the college down the road. Mm. It's literally TikTok. It's literally yeah. the most addictive, incredibly distilled algorithm of really incredible content. People are watching it because it is impressive. So we use those. The goals for us in getting students to continue to engage when their alternatives are things like TikTok, et cetera, 
Part of it is explaining to them why something is hard. So this is like a simple but incredibly powerful change. For example, we do pre-questions, right? So before you do a chapter, we ask you three questions that you'll know by the end of the chapter, but you don't know now. Mm -hmm. Pretty frustrating, right? So it's like if you're getting a chapter and you get three, they could be math problems, they could be psychology problems, you guess at them. Don't even tell me if you're correct or not. We let students know. The reason we're doing this is because it causes this good tension in you. Mm. So you will remember in the future when you see the answer to that. This mm. helps you learn. Mm. Letting somebody know why they're doing something hard yes. makes them a lot more motivated to do it. Imagine if you didn't know that going to the gym made you healthier and you know your clothes fit better. And somebody was just like, pick up and put down these weights. And you had no idea what the benefit was. Or, and you're like, isn't there like a robot that can do that for me? Like, why am I doing this, right? People don't mind doing hard things. It's not about making it easy. It's mm. about making them want to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And the relevance is a huge topic, as is desirable difficulty, you know, which you're touching on there too. You don't want it to be so hard that they can't get through it and have the right motivation to come back. Because in some ways, learning that that grit and perseverance to kind of power through, frequently that's the main limiting factor to those gateway degrees that can really open up the potential for your future. What about the economics of all this? You're providing affordable education. I'd love it if you could explain a little more how you're doing what you're doing. Yeah. So we're a for-profit company, which, you know, I actually wrote a statement on it on our front page to explain why. So initially I actually tried to fund the, the company off foundations mm. and it was a nightmare. It was pretty wild coming off the success of Masterclass and saying, hey, I want to help upgrade this system. I don't want to disrupt this system. College education is amazing. Put a person on the moon. Okay. Like we know it works. It's too expensive. When you look mm. at the ROI, the I is way too big, but the yeah. returns are super clear. So I go to foundations. It's so slow. Nobody's willing to take a jump on anything. So I actually just got frustrated and self-funded it. And then very quickly, Michael Deering came in and then GSV and then Google Ventures. We've actually raised about 46 million in venture funding so mm. far, but this is a mission-driven company. And it's funny because people have a hard time kind of wrapping their head around that sometimes until they look at the tuitions between nonprofit and for-profit colleges. Nonprofits tend to be more expensive. There's nothing wrong with that or with the nonprofits. What's wrong is we need to figure out how to deliver education less expensively. Because the problem that we're running into is that students are restricting their majors going into college. They look at the expense of college and they say, I have to either get a business or a computer science degree. Right. How am I going to pay for college otherwise? Even if they do go into a degree, which we need lots of history, philosophy. I love liberal arts. I love hiring people with liberal arts backgrounds. Yeah. They come out the other side and let's say they have a history degree and they say, okay, well, now I've got all these student loans. I can't go work at an NGO. I can't go pursue this you know, documentary I want to do. I have to go work in finance. And the thing is, there's no problem in work in finance if you want to work in finance. But the idea that we are restricting a human being's opportunities to live a happy life from such an early age is pathological. So the economics of this clearly online scalable is the only way that we can educate the number of young people that are coming up in the world today. There's mm -hmm. a massive need for education. People are hungry for it. India has a booming education industry as well as a booming population. 
And I say the more education, the better. Now, the reason it has to be scalable is because of this economic principle called Bomo's cost disease. Mm. And Bomo's cost disease is basically that if an hour of a person's time yields a certain amount of productivity and the rest of the industries around them start becoming more efficient. So an hour of those industries, an hour of a person's time is more productive. Mm. Necessarily, that original person's hour has to become more expensive. So we start looking at the way we've taught, which is the same for thousands of years. I think it's a very natural way to teach in the tribal manner, right? You've got a person, 30 people, something like this. The efficiency of that hasn't changed. And the Industrial Revolution took off in the 1800s. Mm -hmm. So now you've got a problem because all the other industries, a single hour does more with a person's time. And now a single hour still teaches the same number of students. Mm. I mean, I don't love that. I would love if every student could have a one-on-one -on -one tutor. I think that'd be incredible. Right. It's not economically feasible. That's why we have to be scalable. We have to be online and we can do that at high quality. And then at the same time, there are ways in which you can invest that improve the quality. You're always looking for innovation on the delivery side. You've talked to educational psychologists. You're also someone who has a background in media, gaming, and innovation. Are there other trends emerging nowadays that are capturing your imagination, things that you think might be important for folks who care about the future of learning? Yeah. What I found watching my dad teach when I was younger is he would try any new thing to connect with the students. Hmm. So I remember he had this like system that was like a game show where you could use buzzers and he'd ask questions and the students would like buzz and they'd do a game show. Such a simple concept, really fun. Yeah. And what I'm seeing now is the really good teachers out there are using every avenue they can. You see them on TikTok. I think there's account, this account teaching on tables. Mm. And it's this, this teacher that just uses TikTok for it. And that's the way she teaches her students. Great. I say great. We are seeing a trend of this sort of more you know, short form stuff. McGraw-Hill just released Sharpen. We'll see how this all goes. I say try it all and find out what happens. Facebook, or I mean, Meta's been making a lot of noise about the metaverse. Right. Uh, Mike Astolfi and I were very early in VR. We actually made the one of the first five games for Oculus Rift at, at E3 that year. Cool. So we've been a huge fan of it, but we're also big fans of only using what's effective. So I think we will see really great VR solutions in the future. I think it'll take us a little while to figure out how to interact with that technology and how it works for teaching. I think we're going to find out that it's really nice for people to just be able to work together in the same space. Yeah. I know that's a funny thing for a you know, person going down the online road, but like my hope would be that somebody finds a friend in our class and you go to their house and you work yeah. side by side on your laptops. It's what I did in college. Mm -hmm. and that doesn't go away. That part of our brain that yeah. enjoys being around other people mm -hmm. doesn't go away. Even for an introvert like me that wants to enjoy it and then have some alone time away from other people. <laughs> Yeah, that's great. And it is interesting to to think about as these virtual spaces emerge, can you get some virtual sense of community or, or do you have to actually be shoulder to shoulder? I can answer that. So here's what's interesting. I'm a, obviously video games comes up a lot. I've designed a lot of products. If people aren't looking at every video game that makes headlines coming out, they're missing out on the best thinking in interactive design. Because here's the thing, we know community works online because we've seen it in video games. And we know community around hard stuff works online. World of Warcraft had these massive guilds that would do these raids. That stuff wasn't easy. You're staying up all night, you're coordinating these things. Yeah, it's maybe more fun to go kill a monster and get coins 
than it is to do an exam. But as long as you can align the community around that goal, you're set. I mean, we, we've looked at doing, you know, we, we actually have this kind of interesting 2D audio spatial setup that our VP of engineering made. And we'll just drop all the students into it the first day. And you look like a little game character. Mm. There's no video, but mm -hmm. you can hear each other. Sort of like Gather Town. Yeah. But it's great that there's no video because it's low pressure. It lowers the anxiety. Then everybody just mills around and talks to each other, gets to know each other. It's first day of class. It's amazing. You're, you're talking to this prodigy high schooler that's you know, making rockets, this retired CEO, this working dad that's like going back to school. It's the coolest thing. And everybody's like really nice to each other. Yeah, you got yeah. to seed that. And you got those initial interactions. Mm -hmm. Nothing fixes toxicity like deafening silence from people. That's how I go about it. <laughs> Pretty amazing stuff going on. The, the company's called outlier.org. Aaron Rasmussen has been our guest Today, as we're concluding, I always love to give uh, guests a chance to provide some closing thoughts, perhaps some takeaways for our listeners as they go back to the rest of their lives. Any concluding thoughts? Yeah, I'm just a big fan of anything you learn about educating people. Let's all share it. I found that people in ed tech tend to be a lot less competitive than other industries because I think a lot of us got into it for the same reasons, which is to educate people. And I think that there's a huge amount of opportunity to learn more about the way people learn than our species has ever known. You know, right now we're doing this better and cheaper. In the future, it'll be faster. And to your reference before about the forgetting curve, I don't know if it'll be faster in overall time to learn a topic, but probably mm. in the time per day, mm. it will be. Mm. Shout out to Ebbinghaus. And <laughs> Shout out to Ebbinghaus. Yeah, yeah. I like to quote Barton Fink. We're going to be hearing from that kid, and I don't mean a postcard. Very impressed with all the work that Aaron and team are doing. The company's called outlier.org. Check them out. Aaron, thank you so much for joining us on today's show. Thank you so much for having me, Mike. Awesome. And our listeners, hopefully you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. If you did, please subscribe, tell your friends, do all the good things. This is Trending in Education.